You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Fran Barber. And I'm Robin Whitaker. Hello. Hello. And this is the first week of Lent. Yes. And Robin, you and I are going to be talking about Genesis 9, verses 8 to 17, Psalm 25, verses 1 to 10, and Mark 1, verses 9 to 15. And we're going to kick off with the uh, gospel. The gospel. Uh, but before we do, a couple of words about Lent, which we're all super familiar with, being preachers. But just a reflection I had this week while I was preparing some work for another part of my ministry. Um, and thinking about the popular understanding and, you know, to a great extent correct understanding of Lent as a penitential season. Um, we're following Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and the destination of the garden and so on. And then I came across this little video from Rowan Williams. It was a bit of an accidental discovery and I think it's from a few years ago. And he was doing a little account of Lent for those who have no experience of the church. And I was just struck by in the history of Lent, which sort of it developed really from the very early practice that um, people came to faith and were baptised at Easter. That was the logical time, the time of new life and resurrection. Um, and that Lent, the practices of Lent associated with the 40 days of um, in the wilderness and so on, um, and Jesus' temptation, mm. all developed. And, you know, there was catechesis, there's learning, there's preparation, there's fasting, and all of that developed over the years. But actually... It was the vision of new life and resurrection and baptism mm. that was at the forefront. And he talked about it's not 40 days to be melancholy and gloomy, um, which I found um, both those things I've just talked about, the penitentialness and the going to the garden and the cross, it's, it's all obviously true. Mm. But it is a bit about the emphasis and what we place on it and uh, how we capture Lent in our preaching and in, in our worship leading generally. I think that's really helpful, Fran, because I think the the repeated, you know, we tell ourselves this is a penitential season, and yes, it is. But to what end? Mm. So maybe as preachers, particularly if you're the regular preacher in your congregation and you're planning out Lent, um, you know, one of the big questions to think is, is what is the season for? I know a lot of churches do Lenten studies. So there is perhaps there's a memory that this is a season of catechism. It's a season of actually learning about our faith. And if we're penitential and a bit more reflective than usual, it is for something, right? It's not mm. beating ourselves up for mm. the sake of beating ourselves up. That's not true penitence. It's about examination so that we would grow in love and faith and, and discipleship. And in a very real sense, people, whoever they are, yeah. even in the pews and those beyond, um, are not going to hear the message if it is all gloom and doom. No. And, you know, the context needs to be the good news of salvation yep. um, from which or within which you then respond and see, um, you know, the call and the need to bow before God in reflection of yourself and God and so on. So mm. anyway, a little Lenten reflection. Re reflection. Speaking of good news, that's how Mark's gospel begins, Fran. Did yes. you like that awkward segue? Oh, I did. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was <laughs> Just very sheer smooth. brilliance. That was very smooth. So our lectionary picks up in verse 9 
Um, and so far in Mark, we haven't had a lot. We've had an announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ, mm. a quote from the prophet Isaiah, and the appearance of John the Baptizer. Which, what more do you need? Oh, a birth story. No. Oh, well, I quite like Mark's to Mark. Brevity. I like, so do I. Yeah. And then in the section we have today, these six verses, we are going to get baptism, temptation, and the beginning of ministry. And in typical Markan style, these are all condensed. It's mm. super dramatic. Mm. Then this, then this, then mm. this. We don't get details. I love books like that. <laughs> I know. Good for holiday I'm not reading. Good with, I'm going to. Oh, people are going to come at me now. I don't really like Jane Austen because I feel like that things don't oh, happen like that. In wash Jane out Austen. your mouth, Fran. <laughs> You're talking to a Jane Austen fan. <laughs> I know. That's what, but I was just. But generally, I'm sympathetic that excess of description is simply annoying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's start. We've got three short scenes, and in one nine, it begins with Jesus. We simply get him located as a man who's come from Nazareth of Galilee. And he was baptised. Now, that seems like a fairly straightforward narrative point, but if we've read the few verses before, John is baptising a baptism of forgiveness for sin. Mm. Um, We get no um, qualifiers around this, just that Jesus comes and is baptised, like everyone else, for the forgiveness of sins, which immediately raises a whole bunch of questions. Well, we've and we've mentioned this before in our conversation on yep. here in the past, but that um, baptism in Judaism, like these are Jewish pe- people here yeah, in the story. This is, yeah, this is <laughs> like, washing, washing, so right? Washing, but just in terms of um, those of Christians who, those of us who just think we've invented these practices or, out of or forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, out of thin air. No, that's right. So it's very Jewish setting. This is that water purification rituals are you know, part of the practices. Um, And there's two things to note here. Um, One is that there is already a mechanism for the forgiveness of sins within Judaism. In fact, there are many of them, and this is just one. The washing washing is one one of many that includes sacrificial systems and other Mm. things. So forgiveness of sins already existed before Jesus, just FYI Christians. It's sort of one of those things that's obvious, but that... I know, we kind of forget, right? Um. And two, and Matthew's gospel will clear this up because it's clearly a bit of an issue, um, Jesus receives this same baptism as everyone else at this point. So um, Mark is not really interested or it doesn't occur to him to be interested in the question of whether Jesus was as a sinner or not and why he needed forgiveness. Matthew, that will obviously bother because he adds a whole narrative about why are you coming to me for baptism? You should be baptising me. Mm. So he's aware that this could be a theological problem. Mm. But Mark doesn't really care. Hasn't I like thought about he, it. I yeah. like that he doesn't care. And if I could say one more thing before handing over to you, Fran, um, I think what everything I just said is not the main point. The main point comes next with the heavens being split open and this mm. word here is schizomai, like split, that torn. That really struck me and um, echoed in my mind the curtain of the temple breaking yes. into uh, After Jesus dies. After Jesus dies. So there's these illusions here of that already. And last week with the Transfiguration we had texts where that, that sort of so-called divide between heaven and earth was being breached consistently, mm. right? Um it wasn't quite as violent as this. I mean, no. it was chariots. I mean, it's you said at the time it was military. Yes. But somehow, um, even with the greater number of words and imagery in that, didn't seem as 
violent as this. No, this seems like a rending of... Mm. And, of course, if we think back to Genesis 1, the language there of a, of a firmament that divides the waters above mm. so the from the earth, so heaven and earth, um, is thought of as a kind of barrier. Mm. So this is very much playing on that imagery that the barrier has been torn in a way that maybe can't be repaired. So, Well, w- both can't be repaired, but it's a new creation that is coming. Yes. So... Um, that does a lot of symbolic work for who Jesus is as kind of breaking down that barrier. And it also puts us firmly in apocalyptic territory that this, that, that division between heaven and earth is, is broken open. Um, and, of course, the divine vo- voice then speaks and we get this first utterance of three in the gospel that Jesus is God's son, um, the, the beloved. beloved. Yeah, uh, a phrase we heard last week at the trans- transfiguration. Yeah. So if we were reading the text in order, we'd get there again in nine chapters. But yeah, mm. in our lectionary, we've already heard it once, and now we hear it again at the very beginning here. Anything else you noticed in that scene? No, before I we- mean it's pretty much we picked up every word. <laughs> <laughs> it's only three verses. There's only so I know, much. You can so say. I don't think anything else. I mean, the dove imagery becomes mm. um, the spirit's presence. The there. spirit's presence. Yeah. But no, I, I mean, the next bit for me, the testing, so to speak, um, the driving into the wilderness yeah. by the Spirit and, you know, we often, I think, unconsciously or not, when we evoke the Holy Spirit, um, well, I'll speak for myself, you know, I pray that the Holy Spirit's creative presence moves through our work today, as I might pray when we're at a committee meeting or something like that. I mean, I need to start praying that the Holy Spirit will drive, drive us. <laughs> so, I, you know, that's a domestication then that I do. Yes, um, yes. But, we, we, we want but, the gentle movement of the yeah, Spirit, the, not, the, not the violent oof. driving one. Yeah, so I think that that's a sermon. There yes. you go, folks. There's a title. Yeah, that could. And we certainly don't want the Spirit driving us out into the wilderness, right? We want the gentle Spirit that will just come and do, make the things happen that it's we want to I mean. happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also for Mark, what's clear here is that wilderness becomes the focus, not the temptation. So the <clears throat> Mark and I mean Matthew and Luke, there's a conversation. Yeah, we get the specifics of those of temptations. What, you know what yeah. they're going to be. Um, yeah. Whereas here, yeah, here it's really that he's in the wilderness. Yes, he's being tested by Satan, who's an adversary figure, Satan. Um, but, and he's with the beast, so this is a place of wildness. Yeah, it's not a silent retreat. No. In the wilderness. No. It's, but the angels waited on him. So um, I get like that's such a little an aside that we can skip over. But there's something about even in the wilderness places surrounded by wild beasts mm. and feeling tormented by things, whether physically or mentally mm. or anything else, the angels are wet. Like God, God is God is present there as mm. well. I did read um, a little note in one commentary I was looking at that in it's Isaiah thirty four verses eight onwards. Wild animals and demons are said to be in the wilderness. Yeah, I just found that someone who doesn't know the scriptures quite as well as you, I found that really helpful. It's another tiny connection here. Yes. Uh, well, again, we're in Mark is really into the sort of cosmic apocalyptic setting mm. so we're going to have an exorcism be the mm. first miracle mm. so jesus is going to mm. butt up against demons and mm. evil forces everywhere um 
So if we enter into Mark's world and just accept that on its own terms without trying to explain it mm. away, then, yeah, the, the presence of Satan and demons and wild animals out in the wilderness mm. is, is normal, right, well, for a, he, a scary place. And he didn't invent that if it's in Isaiah. No, no, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's typical, yeah. yeah. So tested by Satan, is that how we pronounce it properly? Probably. The Satan, yes. Uh, adversary. Yeah. Um, it's a Hebrew word like this. Is a heap like mm. we find the Satan in I mean, Job I, and yeah. When I'm thinking of preaching, I always come up with way too big issues to try to tackle. But <laughs> like seriously, there's another sermon. So, like, what, what is it about Satan language? We don't use it in our tradition. But what are the pros and the cons of describing and understanding evil in our world in that way? Well, yeah, and even the language of testing or tempted. The NRSV has tempted. The word could be test, tried, like a time of trial, um, you know. So in the Lord's Prayer we pray, do not lead us mm. into temptation. It's very similar mm. phrasing of being driven by the Spirit. Like So weirdly the prayer Jesus teaches is the antithesis of this. It's we pray, don't don't lead us in exactly mm. the way Where Jesus, did, right, yeah. to, Um and I, I don't really know where I'm going with that, but it's just an interesting parallel. Well, we but, don't. Well, but we could play with. I think I'd say it's done on our behalf at that fundamental level. Mm. Or that like, we don't have to do everything Jesus did to be followers of Jesus, like he died for put, us, put on crosses. Mm. Yes. Um, but yeah, we could. I think you're right. There is there is a whole sermon just on those middle two verses of wilderness experiences and feeling sort of battled by the world and under attack or whatever language you want to use and what what language do we use and why. So in Mark's day, that's Satan. But what language do we use? And if we're uncomfortable with the language of evil, why? why? Yeah. Like, that's, what, that's what I mean about yeah. I think that's a really So that's sermon number two. Sermon. <laughs> there, off you go, people. What's the third one, Fran? <laughs> um. Well, uh, the summary of the gospel in mm. verse 15 is your third one. <laughs> it is. We the didn't time- tee that up, but that's exactly the answer <laughs> I was hoping for. <laughs> the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Yes. Repent and believe in the good news. Yeah. So we've got, again, Mark is so brief, but we've got massive events that have happened. John's been arrested. Jesus comes back, presumably from the wilderness, and his whole ministry is framed as proclaiming good news. So back to your point right at the beginning, Fran, if we're not proclaiming good news even in the midst of Lent, what are we doing? Um, this has got political language in it. Like we could equally translate this, you know, the time has come or come near the empire of God has arrived. You know, the reign of mm. God has arrived um, for kingdom, which is... Announced as good news. Mm. Um, what what do you Which, think the resonant? How would you preach that? Apart from just saying that, because I don't know what that. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I know you know the call to repent um, in a comfortable Western context, where largely you're led to believe that you're fundamentally good and you just need to be reminded to be nice sometimes. Is challenging mm. to be heard. Yeah. To be, um, I was 
reading, I think I had a Lenten discipline a couple of years ago of reading Fleming and Rutledge's The Crucifixion. Oh, yes. I was reading the, the chapter on sin um, the other day and, she, she yeah, it's a great turn off all of this to our sort of audience. So, um, yep. Well, it can be and yet I think actually there's a truth to it that can resonate with people because so many people come with burdens of – they might use different language, but yeah. burdens of yeah. regret and pain and held and on to. Lament. Yeah, I was thinking luck. and lament. And, and yeah. also, uh, well, that, one of my questions is because I agree with you, like we're not silly. Our gut knows even if our head yeah. says something yeah. else. But why do, we see, why do we hesitate to call it evil or call it mm. sin or use repent, you know? Yeah. And I think it's partly because some of that language has become so laden or has such negative connotations mm. because of you know, mm. certain church behaviour. Mm. Um, but what does it mean to call people, yeah, to to transformation really? Um, well, Fleming would say that um, a bit like my conversation before my comment about Lent and the emphasis, she would say that there's a time and place to talk about these things and for a congregation and anybody it's in the context of the good news of salvation Yep. That's where you talk about repentance. <laughs> yes, with the assu- it's assurance. Only, it's, only, yep. it's only with the knowing of that wonder that you then get to see the need for it, mm. to put it simply. Yeah. And I think there there is a circle or a, or a stitching up of the circle in the imagery here with, with the heavens being torn apart might seem just a nice little cosmic thing, but I think the announcement – that Jesus then makes that the kingdom of God has come near is then the in, the embodiment, like the announcement of of, of what we've seen symbolised through the tearing heavens. Um, and then that, that gap has been closed in some way or perceived gap or whatever language you want to give that. It's a, it's a gap and then there's a relationship that is radically new. Yep. And forever. Yes. Should we? We should probably move on. Now, Psalm 25. Yes, verses 1 to 10. Um, Has all the themes of Lent we've just been talking about. It really does. So you, if you're really sick, if you've been a long-term preacher and you're really sick of talking about Jesus' baptism, any of the things we just said, or don't want to deal with Noah's flood, which is where we're going next, um, it's all here. You could do use the whole of Psalm 25 as a meditation for the season of Lent. There's stuff about shame, um, about learning and teaching, the catechetic yes. sort of practice or discipline of Lent, of the, wait, me, the mercy of God that in yes. undergirds all of this and our existence. Yep. Um, God's instruction, humility, um and, and constant refrains, in the midst of all of that, constant refrains of remembering God's steadfast mm. love and faithfulness. So steadfast love, there is a translation of chesed. Um, loving kindness is mm. another way to um, translate that. So I like that the psalm is punctuated by, yes, there's shame, there's been battles lost to enemies, there's sins of our youth, there's a need for instruction and learning um, but there's also a constant reminder that all of that is done knowing God is steadfastly loving 
and faithful to us. So, um, yeah, it could be interesting to reflect on the psalm with your group and think together about how you might use the time of Lent for some of those things. And it's also, like most of the time, the psalm's quite good um, liturgically. Yes. Verse 7 might be a declaration of forgiveness, for example, or a prayer of confession. Yeah, it could be. So on to Genesis chapter 9. Mm-hmm. And the lectionary gives us verses 8 to 17, which um, we're picking up the story after the flood, so after the mass destruction of all of humanity except for Noah and his family and the animals in the ark. Which, when you say it like that, I have in my head, you know, this um, children's toy, uh, children's toy that we have. Yep. Which is, which everyone, every household with kids involved in it would have, which is all the wooden animals in bright colours and the huge majestic ark and how it's, um, anyway, it it completely, of course, you're not going to give a children yep. um, something to play with that um, alludes to genocide, but I'm just talking about the reduction of the story. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and look, we... I feel conflicted about this story because on the one hand, I think it's functioning as an etiology, which is a type of Hebrew Bible story where it explains the reason for something. So when Mm. we see a rainbow, it reminds us of this. Mm. So working backwards, every time you see a rainbow, you're reminded of God's promise that never again will it rain so much that there'll be a flood that destroys the world. Um, And so the rainbow gets remembered as a symbol of hope and promise and this covenant. So there's lots of covenants in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. This is one. This is the Noah Mm. Noah covenant. Mm. We'll get the Abraham one, which is circumcision. We'll get the Moses one, which is about law. Um, But it's all reliant on a story of mass destruction and the violence of God. It is. I just want to... Make a comment here because I was listening to a podcast with, if you're Australian, you'll know about Richard Feidler's conversations on ABC. Uh, And just the other week he was talking to an academic called Louise Louise Pryke, who's one of the few scholars in the world who can read cuneiform. Okay. Uh, And she's a specialist in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I just mentioned this because there is a story of the flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh that is quite clearly to scholars and anyone who isn't a scholar. Uh, and this, this text is 4,000 years old, the Epic of Gilgamesh or more. Yep. And that it's been whoever wrote the Noah story had heard the Epic of Gilgamesh yep. flood story and that in the Epic of Gilgamesh um, that the flood story explains the tragedy of their contemporary circumstances um, but there's a lot more violence behind it whereas here it's used to explain the blessings of life I don't mm. know whether I'm explaining very well um, it's, it was a known text that is trying to be put to other ends at this point yes yeah I think that I mean yeah scholars have long talked about how this, along with other parts of the Older Testament, are reliant on these other traditions, right? That that many, or another way to put it is many of these ancient cultures had their own versions of a creation story and of a flood story Which, and et cetera, but they take on their own resonances according to the 
Yeah, well, there's that. Theology. But it's more than that, though. When you think of the creation story, the first one is um, – what do you call that one? Um, I've gone blank. But it's highly violent and it's between the gods, whereas the creation story we have in Genesis 1 is is the opposite of that. It's been transformed quite deliberately yes. theologically to something else. And what I'm saying from what I could hear of this podcast conversation with this academic, that the the flood story from the Epic of Gilgamesh that's been used here has been theologically shifted. Mm. But I don't know whether a scholar like yourself would be convinced. Probably not. Well, I'd need to hear the argument, but I, I still think it doesn't remove... Oh, no. I mean, no, it doesn't. I, I'm always in tension with texts like this because on the one hand... God does huge violence here, mm. but also within the setting of this, um, this is how God's behaved, right? God's, gods have life and death in their hands and they can be fickle with it sometimes, right? So there's something about the way God's behaved, particularly in these ancient Mesopotamian religions mm. where gods can smite people mm, and that's mm, what mm, gods do. Mm. Um but I think that doesn't remove understanding its historical context does not remove the problem for us that God has just killed off humanity because He deemed them mm. wicked and horrible. Um, and it's at least it's not one tribe though, is it? Or one? It's all no, of us. It's everybody. Yes. Well, that's well, better than colonizing, well, kind of killing one lot. <laughs> select killing. Yeah. Oh. At least we all get the same. <laughs> True, maybe, sort of. (laughs) Grasping at straws. Um, So the rainbow can feel like a bit of a Band-Aid, really, on on a gushing wound of violence is, I think, my problem with this story. I just want to name that. But at the same time, because I learnt this story in Sunday school, I do look mm. at a rainbow and I see it as a symbol of hope. And, of course, the rainbow also means a million other things in our culture now too. Mm. Um, mm. So it it is a positive symbol and I don't want to ruin that for anybody. Um, but we just need to think carefully when we preach these texts. I'm not saying go and terrorise people with the violence of God, but we do need to think mm. about the ways we um, name and, and don't gloss over, I think, the violence. Mm, I mean, for me as a preacher, I would probably want to acknowledge that relatively briefly. Yeah, fair enough. Um, because, I mean, just because that's important and it's a, it's a factual aspect to the text. Um, um, but here we've got oh, so much rich stuff, rich stuff. I mean, you've talked about covenant and I want to talk a bit more about that. But mm. I will remember my covenant. There's something like super relational still mm. going on here between God and God's people. Um, I will remember you. I mean, this whole echo of us, us asking God, don't remember our transgressions or remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's, yeah, remembering, uh, is pa- yeah. remembering is just how we exist as a community. It's what we do when we're coming to the Eucharist. We're doing a lot more than that. but <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's right. The I will remember this is a very positive promise. Yeah. And um, it's with every living creature of all, all flesh. It's, and it's, all flesh is mentioned five times or yes, something. Yeah. So there's a radical inclusivity and I think Will Gaffney's got a little uh, reflection on this reading on the Working Preacher site from I don't know when, a few years ago. But, mm. you know, she lists just the whole diverse mass of humanity, not all of them, but, you know. That's included in all flesh. That's included in, included flesh, in yep. this and 
wouldn't have been thought to have been included in this way until relatively recent times. And those who um, preach with an eye towards um, ecological matters might also be heartened to find it's not just all flesh as in all all humans. It explicitly includes every living creature. Mm. So we are – it is a – it is a covenant between God and creation fully, not just humans, right? Mm. This is we can't reduce I mean, it to one human set of humans or one tribe of humans. It's yeah, universal I mean, in scope. That means I mean, going back to the violence behind this, it's actually not just God killing humans, it's everything. Yeah. I mean, it God is. was undoing creation. Yes. So I think that's Obviously not great and obviously it's no. violent, but I think it's not quite the same as a text around genocidal violence. Yes, or human – yes. And in, look, in that sense you have reminded me, that, you know, in these early first sort of 12 chapters or so of Genesis, we are in this world of mythic stories mm. and there is a sense that the flood story does function exactly as you've said, Fran, as a an undoing of creation and then a redoing of creation, this time starting with this little family – and the animals mm. from the ark, mm. um, and this promise that they will not be destroyed. So um, that might be a way to frame it that's a bit more helpful for people. I think that's that's the the, the approach I would take. Um, and the other really fruitful angle too is covenant. Now, I, mm. and you'll know way more detail about. You've already alluded to three different covenants in the <laughs> script in the Hebrew Bible, but there's heaps and heaps of them. Yep. And again, actually, in Gail Ramshaw's book I mentioned last episode, she's got a great chapter on covenant as well. Oh, great! Um, and she highlights in particular um, in the context of, of Western culture, so called. Um, where we are formed by individualism, we are, we have lots of self-help books helping us to self-actualise or whatever, you know, we're <laughs> capitalists where it's all about economic success and so on. Um, maybe we need to give a bit more consideration to the everlasting nature of the biblical covenants mm-hmm. and this covenant in particular um, and sort of that, that, that our welfare isn't just reliant on us but actually is from God and those around us. Yeah. Like, so it's something that takes us beyond ourselves and our own lifespan even. Well, yeah, that, that and, that we're, and we're not reliant. Like it's not I – mean, yeah. it's an illusion that we can do it all ourselves. And Yeah. And so the biblical covenant in particular, which requires both parties – to yeah. make an allegiance. She also tracks some of the Methodist history in particular. Certain traditions of Christianity have really emphasised the covenant thing mm. and uh, Methodism was that and talked about the covenant of baptism. Mm. And we know from the liturgies in our church that there is a response from the people, you know. Yes. In a, so the whole – in a world where we've got warranties that don't last very long, <laughs> prenups – Yes, insurance companies that don't pay up. <laughs> yes, this is this is something this, more everlasting. And, yeah, and I think the communal. I've been sorry. This is a slight tangent, but maybe helpful for people. I've been reading Gary Deverell's new book, Contemplating Country, which for those um, outside our context here in Australia, Gary is an Indigenous Australian theologian, um, and. Uh, so this is really a way of thinking about how Christian theology sits sits alongside or is perhaps even reshaped by Indigenous wisdom and spirituality. And he talks about country in kind of almost the way you're just talking about, Fran, like as, as, as this life force, right, so that, that we're connected to something 
it takes us away from the individualism. So in Indigenous spirituality and um, theology, you are all interconnected, including with the land and one another and the creatures of the land. And living in that way, which I think is probably how a lot of ancient peoples lived, certainly, mm. you know, um, but we are so disconnected from that in the Western world. Um, that means we're also disconnected from the kinds of perhaps things in this story as well mm. where, yeah, where the promise is to something beyond the human. And our reliance. On, you know, on yeah. On God, fundamentally. So have fun with all those readings, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Preach well. <laughs> Goodbye. Till, till next time. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.